What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Jason Robbins, co-founder and CEO of DraftKings. In this conversation, we discuss how Jason and his team built DraftKings into a $15 billion business, their plan to reduce marketing expenses over time, the introduction and diversification of revenue streams, holding Bitcoin on the balance sheet, allowing users to pay in crypto, and more. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features an all-new smart alarm designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with their new Whoop Body Sensor Enhanced Technical Garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device and slide it into your garment of choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. Not only is the device comfortable to wear, the app packs a ton of health information into a simple display that's easy to understand. Get the all-new waterproof device for free when you sign up for Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left on your membership, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling, all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the hype. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30 plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live, 24-7, US-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code Joe. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. All right, Jason, I know you can be doing a bunch of different things with your time, so I appreciate you being here. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. This is a great thing to be doing with my time. Of course. I appreciate that. All right. So we're going to get into a bunch of different stuff. We'll move quick today. I got a million different questions for you. But for some perspective, why don't we start with the founding story, just how you came up with the idea for DraftKings, what the experience was and all of that. My two co-founders, Matt and Paul, I'd worked with for quite some time. Matt, I worked with originally at Capital One. I then went to Vistaprint. Matt joined me shortly thereafter. We both met Paul there. Vistaprint's now called Simpress. So we were there in the late 2000s. And 
all of us played in the company fantasy league. So we knew we had a shared passion for fantasy sports and we became friends and also found out that we all had an entrepreneurial bend and really had the itch to do something. And Matt actually is the one who came up with the idea. One day he pulled me aside. We were just leaving work. It was like 7.30, 8 o'clock. We typically would be some of the last people leaving the office and said, hey, Jason, do you want to come with me to grab a drink? I said, sure. So I headed out and he told me, hey, I think I got a great idea. He's always talked about, let's start a company, but we've never really had a great idea. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I think this is it. So he tells me the original idea for DraftKings. And it took me about 30 seconds and it just sort of like processed it. We kicked around dozens of ideas in the past and nothing really sounded that good. And it just sort of like hit me like, this is the one I think. And so I went home that night and I couldn't sleep. I was so excited about it. And next day I said, Matt, you want to go out and grab another drink or maybe some dinner after work and talk through how we can do this? And he said, yeah. One of the first things I said is we really should bring Paul in. And he agreed. So the next day we went and grabbed Paul and we set up shop in Paul's spare bedroom of his house in Watertown, Massachusetts. We would work nights and weekends. So we were putting in full day at work every day at our day jobs. And then around 7, 38 o'clock at night, we'd head over to Paul's. We'd order some pizza. I could get away with eating pizza back then. I can't do it as much anymore. And we'd work until about 12, one in the morning. And then we'd wake up on Saturday and Sunday around 6 or 7 a.m. and head back over and do it again. It was just really an empty room with a bunch of whiteboards, some cheap tables with laptops on them. And Matt and I were designing wireframes for the original website. Paul was trying to figure out how to write the code. And we created a, a really bad prototype, which we then used to go and raise some money. Of course, the whole thing had to be rebuilt as soon as we raised some money, but we were able to do it. And it took a long time, actually. The reason that we even decided to raise money, we met this great guy, a guy named John Hessian, and he was our original lawyer. And that all came about because we were feeling like a how do we really have skin in the game? How do we make sure we don't lose steam here? And so well, why don't we put some money in? And so we pulled together $25,000, which is like a real lot of money at the time to us. None of us came from a wealthy background. And we said, well, probably shouldn't just put it in like my bank account. We need to open a corporate account. And I guess we should form a company to do that. So we found this guy, John Hessian, and he immediately starts steering us towards like, you're not going to get anywhere with 25 grand. Sure, put it in. It's great commitment, but you need to go raise real money. We said, well, how do we do that? And he said, well, I'll introduce you to some VCs. So he introduced us some VCs and took probably about 50, 60 of them, maybe more. I lost count. All of them said no. And we just kept pushing and pushing. And finally, we found this guy, Ryan Moore at Accomplice Ventures. It was called Atlas. It was part of the broader Atlas Venture Group at the time. And Ryan was a big fantasy football fan himself. So he immediately got it and he put a check in. And that was sort of the start of everything. That was in early 2012. That's amazing. One, but I have a couple questions. So I had read online that you were participating in up to 200 fantasy leagues in a given year. Is that accurate? And how impossible is that to manage? I'm embarrassed to say, but yes, at one point in college, I was, and it was pretty hard to manage. This was like when the first early days of fantasy hitting the internet were happening and like everyone had a, a website. I mean, you could literally go like CNN and Sports Illustrated had a joint venture, CNNSI that had a fantasy product. There were all kinds of different games and I would just sign up for all of them. I mean, this was before it really became a social thing. It was all public games. And so I just went and tried them all and I found myself in probably a little under a hundred under 200 leagues. I had over a hundred just in football alone, but I was in everything. I mean, I played basketball, hockey, baseball, golf, you name it. I was playing it and I just loved it. It was so much fun. Amazing. So you go out and you raise the money. You eventually get someone to say yes, but the people that were saying no, what was their hesitation at first? 
funny story. So the first person we went and pitched was one of John Hessian's intros, a guy named, uh, well, I won't name him. It was at a, a firm that no longer exists. And he said, come back when you have a thousand users. I said, no, no, we need your money to get to a thousand users. He's like, that's not my problem. Come back. We have a thousand users. I said, okay. The second person we pitched, really great guy named Alex at a firm called Spark Capital. Alex Finkelstein, pretty much within like five minutes, he was like, I love this. You guys are great. Come back this on a Thursday or Friday. He's like, come back and pitch the entire partnership on Monday. So we came back and pitched the partnership on Monday. I thought, oh, that was easy. Second guy we pitched, like I should have been doing this money raising thing earlier. And we totally bombed the the partner pitch. And he came back and said, listen, we're not going to do it. And I was crushed. And after that, it was just one miss after miss after miss. I had probably, you know, some of them like took us deep and were heartbreaking, but most of them just took a first meeting and then said, sorry, not for us. So after about 50 of these, I went back to Alex and he was like, hey, I thought I told you, no, why are you back here? And I said, no, I know you said no. I just, you really liked it. And then after this, I've just been like getting no interest. What did I do wrong? Like, what made you like it that made these other people not interested? And he goes, well, tell me who you've been talking to. And I started naming different people around town I've been talking to. And he's like, wrong person, wrong person, wrong person, wrong person. I'm like, well, why? He's like, look, let me show you something. He shows me this one guy's website who we had pitched. And he's like, look at what he's invested in. It was like solar energy projects and like stuff that was just like totally different. He's as like, well, isn't he a VC? Doesn't he invest in, in startups? He's like, yes, but VCs tend to focus on particular things. And I said, well, why did he take the meeting then if it's not a category he's interested in? He's like, VCs will take any meeting. We have to fill our days up meeting with companies. They're never going to say no to an initial meeting. They're just curious to see what's going on and what's around there. I was like, huh, okay. And I was like, well, who should I meet with? Can you introduce me to some people? And he said, well, you don't want me to introduce you to anyone because if I introduce you to someone, they're going to say, why aren't you investing? But I walked out thinking, okay, I finally, I sort of get where I've been going wrong. Literally that night, Alex sends me an email intro to Ryan Moore, the person who eventually invested from Accomplice. It was like one line. It was like, hey, I was chatting with Ryan about his fantasy team. And, and I told him you guys should meet. Um, and I wrote back Alex and said, listen, this is great. Just earlier today, you told me you shouldn't intro me to anybody. Did he ask if you're investing? And Alex was like, it didn't really come up. And so sure enough, Ryan was into it. But one of the things that almost caused him pause is he was like, why isn't Alex into this once he found out? And Alex did us a favor. He helped us. He sort of let Ryan get really interested and kind of get hooked a bit before he finally told him, look, we're not doing it. And so by the time that he told him that, Ryan was already like, yeah, I think I get this. I think I like this team. I feel good about it. So he ended up deciding he was going to do it anyway. But had Alex told him from the first moment, I, I don't know if it would have worked out that way. Hard to say. Although Ryan, I will tell you, is a very contrarian guy. He's probably the best early stock picker I've seen. I mean, he just has an unbelievable instinct for these things. He's had so many great investments. And he sometimes does things that no one else will do. So who knows? But anyway, Ryan at the time I just joined there, he actually, ironically, that very first firm that I didn't name, he was one of the original founders of that firm. And he had had like all the successful investments and he left to go to this firm and eventually became accomplice. So he was, you know, somebody that had a lot of confidence based on his past track record that he knew what he was doing. And finally found somebody that was into it. And what I realized later was that I had actually had somebody try to intro me to a totally different person at that same firm. I mean, they didn't really respond. And turns out that person was not really into fantasy sports. So like it also just sort of clued me in like, wow, what a difference it makes to find somebody. Ryan was a former college football player. He was a really big fantasy football fan. 
fan. And I'm like, wow, it just makes a difference, right? And it was also a time of year. And this was in early September. Football was about to start. Everyone was doing their fantasy drafts. And at that time of year, it feels like it's the biggest thing in the world because everybody, you know, is doing fantasy drafts. So just a lot of circumstances that we kind of got lucky on that looking back, I'm like, all right, now, now that makes sense. I recognize the patterns, but I had no idea what I was doing at the time. And we just sort of stumbled into the right person. And I got lucky that I happened to see Alex the day he was having a beer with Ryan and he happened to intro me and sometimes better to be lucky than good. Yeah, sometimes that's how it works out. Raising a seed round today, five, $10 million might not be that challenging, but back then it was certainly a different environment specifically for this category. But let's roll into, uh, let's fast forward a few years, right? So you guys raise a bunch of money, you go out, you start getting a bunch of customers, you even got investment from, I believe the MLB at some point, and you're building this really good product. You're getting size, you're getting scale, all of that, specifically within the DFS market. And then around 2016, late 2016, early 2017, you guys come to an agreement with FanDuel to merge together, the two biggest players in the DFS space. Eventually, we all know today that didn't end up happening. Just walk me through why you guys originally decided to do that and then the subsequent breakup after that. Well, it started really back in 2014, where as hard as it was, and you noted this to raise the initial money, the space was really starting to get hot in 2014. Big media companies were getting interested in investing. They were doing deals. Leagues were doing deals like the one you mentioned with baseball. And I sat down with the founder of FanDuel and I said, hey, why don't we put this together? And he wasn't really interested. They were much bigger than us at the time. And I just couldn't get him interested. And I kept trying to do that over the course of the next year. And finally, what ended up bringing us together was in late 2015, so about a year after those initial discussions, the initial attempts, I should say, by me, we had a bunch of regulators attack us really headlined by the New York Attorney General at the time. And they were coming after us. It was my sort of crash course in learning about politics and legislation. And I didn't even really know that states, I mean, it's embarrassing to say, I didn't know states even had attorneys general at the time. I knew there was attorney general of the US, but I just had no idea. I mean, it was so off my radar. And so all of a sudden this is happening, this business that had been exploding. We had just a few months earlier taken an investment from major media companies from big crossover funds like Wellington and Franklin Templeton. And all of a sudden we're getting attacked and the valuation came crashing down. And suddenly we found mountains of legal bills and lobbying bills that we weren't anticipating that weren't in the budget that somehow we had to figure out how to get cash for. So finally, at that moment, we had to really collaborate together. And the founder of FanDuel, a guy named Nigel Eccles and I, we started just spending a lot of time going around to different state capitals and just working on the lobby being and on like, how are we going to get ourselves out? Because we were suddenly in the same boat. We had been competing hard before. And now all of a sudden it was both of us kind of had to band together in order to figure out how to survive. I mean, after spending more and more time together, we just figured, hey, listen, maybe we should have done this earlier, but not too late. At least we thought it wasn't too late. It turned out to be too late. So we said, listen, why don't we do this? We brought it to the boards. And the other key thing that happened too was this guy named Harry Sloan, who, as you may know, eventually years later did SPAC deal with us. Harry and I, and this is when I was just like scrounging, trying to raise money. I was having dinner in Vegas. Harry invited me out to dinner because Harry's an incredibly nice and generous guy. And I had just met him, but he starts telling me all about this SPAC. And I was like, hmm, SPAC, I'd never heard of it before. And this was back in 2015, late 2015, or maybe the beginning of 2016, somewhere around there. And I said, Harry, what is a SPAC? And he tells me, oh, a SPAC is this special purpose acquisition company. It's actually something if you go public, you merge into. And then he starts asking me, what is the biggest challenge you've been facing? And I said, well, the biggest challenge I've been facing is I've been trying to get this FanDuel team to come to the table and I just can't get them. And he said, well, I got an idea. What if I take my SPAC 
And I go to both of your boards and I say, hey, why don't we see if we can combine all three of these companies, my SPAC, DraftKings, and FanDuel together? I said, you can do that? He goes, yeah, it's a, it's a company. You can merge companies into it. That's the beauty of the vehicle. And so that was a big impetus for it too. And that's part of what brought everyone, brought Nigel eventually around and said, hey, I want to talk to you about this and you know, sincerity because suddenly there was like a financing vehicle to do it. And importance of that story beyond just the fact that that was how we ultimately ended up doing the merger deal or Spark doing the merger deal. That's how I knew what a SPAC was. That's also how I knew that you could do this type of structure. So then years later, when we were in 2019, we were trying to buy this company called SB Tech. We knew that we needed to own our own sports betting technology. At the time, we were using a third-party service called Canby, which is fine. Canby does a great job, but we really felt like in order to get to where we needed to in this business, we had to own our own tech. We've always owned our own tech, and we've always been able to control our own product destiny. That's just core to our DNA. And so I was trying to buy this company, SB Tech. I worked out a deal with them, and I knew that I could either privately finance it or another option was to do a SPAC. And the only reason I knew that is because I had met Harry years earlier in this whole idea of DraftKings and FanDuel, because normally you can't IPO and buy a company at the same time. This was like really the only way to do it. So I called up Harry and I said, Harry, I got this deal. I think it's really interesting. What do you think? Do you think the public markets would like this? Do you think we could use your SPAC to do it? And he loved it. And that's actually what ended up bringing us together and doing the SPAC deal. So, you know, another example of how I just sort of got lucky. I met the right person, Harry Sloan, who had been early in the SPAC game before everybody was doing it years later. And he's the one who educated me about how it works. The fact that it was possible to combine multiple companies into a SPAC. He didn't have to just do one. And that's what gave me the idea of calling him up and doing the SB Tech and Diamond Eagle deal, which ultimately took us public in early 2020. Gotcha. So that's fascinating. I'd love to move forward a little more to recent times, right? So now we're at 2021. DraftKings is a $13 billion company today. You guys have over a million monthly unique active customers. You guys are live for online sports betting in nearly 30% of the U.S. population. iGaming is around 11% or more. How do you think, I think the one criticism that some people have with these businesses, right? And specifically DraftKings and others is the cost to acquire a customer, right? And they say, hey, these companies are spending so much money. They're going to spend a billion dollars this year in marketing. How do you think about the cost to acquire a customer and the eventual lifetime value of these customers? So we've actually been incredibly consistent on this topic since we first decided to go public. What's funny to me is everyone thinks that somehow the, no matter how many times I say this, people think that somehow the competitive environment is driving spend and things like that has nothing to do with it. We're a very analytically driven company. We base our spend on two to three year paybacks for customers. We base our entry in our playbook going into new states on two to three year pass to profitability for new states. And we haven't changed that, not a bit since we went public. So when we spend more in marketing, it's because it's meeting our payback thresholds. When we have a bigger line item for it, it's because there's more states and more new customers to acquire. But we're not changing it based on anything competitive. We're changing it if we see that we can acquire more customers and more states that are launching at scale and do so within those same payback thresholds that we haven't changed at all since we went public. What's funny to me about that is like when we spend more, it means it's really working. If we like, for example, Arizona, I think is a, a great example. Arizona, we launched in early September. We didn't even have a daily fantasy product there. It was one of a handful of states where we had no daily fantasy. So we had no existing database. So unlike other states where we start off with a big database, big set of customers didn't have it. We reached 100,000 paid actives in Arizona in the first 17 days. To put it in context, it took us over 100 in New Jersey, over 200 in states like Indiana and Pennsylvania, some of these earlier states, literally hundreds of days in those states. And it took us 
17 days in Arizona. The reason for that is we had incredible response to our customer acquisition. I actually think the competitive spend helped us. I think it helped bring more people into the market. I think we do a better job with our advertising, with our conversion flows of actually converting those customers into new users. And so I think that's a big reason why we were able to ramp up. I'm sure Arizona is a great market too. I actually... I think there's a number of factors that drove it. Um, but the bottom line is we're not even trying to guess why is it working? Why isn't it? We're simply looking at the data and we had some of the best CACs in Arizona that we've ever seen in any new state. So of course, you're going to keep pouring fuel on the fire when you're getting that kind of efficiency in your marketing spend. Yeah. And correct me where I'm wrong, if I'm wrong on this, but I believe you guys have been consistently saying that two to three years after the market goes live, that you guys expect to start to see profitability. New Jersey has come to that time period, I believe, and you guys have started to be profitable within that state. We'll see how the other ones mature over time. But I think the other argument in this space is really that the sports book, especially on the the online sports betting side, will be commoditized, right? The products will not be that much different. The lines will be similar. The products will be the same, essentially, for the majority of sports books. Maybe there's a few things here or there, but generally the customer will not necessarily care which one they use. So with that in mind, not necessarily saying that's true, but with that in mind, how do you think about retention rates, the stickiness of your platform and churn rates overall? Well, we definitely look at all that data and part of why we're basing our returns on two to three years and not longer, because I think most people who have been betting on sports later in life would say they've been doing it for a long time. So you could argue certainly for a longer lifetime valued uh, and longer payback period. The reason we've kept it to two to three years is we're data driven and we don't have more than three years of data in our most tenured state, New Jersey. So I always laugh when I see companies that are like three years into something and basing their returns on five-year plus 10-year your LTVs, like who knows? I think that if you look at history, it would be pretty unlikely that these customers would all suddenly churn. And we certainly haven't seen anything in the data to suggest that. If anything, the retention rates, the growth and spend has been outsized compared to our expectations, but we're still very disciplined. We're going to make sure we actually have the data before we do things. And that's just like a way of running the company that even if I personally believe that these are going to be very conservative numbers. We can spend at scale without having to bend that. And I think it's the right philosophy to instill in the company. All that said, I absolutely would dispute that products are going to become commoditized and that product doesn't matter. I mean, we acquired SB Tech for this very reason. If I thought that was the case, we wouldn't have spent the money we did to make that acquisition. We wouldn't have spent 15 months between when we went public and just a couple months ago migrating onto that platform. We wouldn't be putting all these resources we have on a very robust product roadmap over the next 12 to 24 months. I think, sure, there are things that'll be commoditized. Everyone will have the same pregame NFL lines on spreads and over-unders and things like that. But the live betting experiences, the prop bets, things like that will all be much, much different book to book. And I think that also the ability to actually curate those things, the more live betting, the more prop betting you put out there, it can overwhelm the customer. You have to have great data science to be able to say, this person likes this, we're going to actually show them. If you have a hundred different live bets somebody can make on a single play of NFL, and I'm just using this as an example, you can't show a hundred to the customer. They won't have time to pick something. They'll just be overwhelmed. So I I think that's a big part of it too. There's also tech behind like reliability and stability of those things. So for example, one of the big issues with live betting is that markets get pulled down when customers are trying to make bets because everything's happening so fluidly. So the example I would give is suddenly a flag is thrown on the field and that's a moment when there's a play stoppage and a customer says, hey, I want to make a live bet. All of a sudden, because the algorithms at the books, they don't know if there's a 
flag thrown in the end zone. It looks like maybe a pass interference in the end zone or behind the line of scrimmage, or just a holding penalty or a false star. They don't know what it is. So they just pull down the market because the odds can change so dramatically based on that. So we're building technology and also building processes so that we can account for probabilities based on things like where the flag was thrown on the field and based on people watching the games and manually overriding to try to keep the live markets up longer because nothing is more frustrating to a customer than you have a stoppage in play. You're trying to make a bet and all of a sudden, and the wheel is spinning and you can't get it in. And I think that's a reason people will favor one book over the other. It's totally technology-driven, totally model-driven, totally process-driven, and has nothing to do with whether the bet options were same or not before the play started. Yeah, I had a feeling you were going to push back on that. And I, uh, I, I do agree that being vertically integrated from a technology standpoint gives you guys a big advantage. So my questions off of that, though, would be, would be a couple, right? Micro betting. I know your CFO has talked about in the past more recently saying that he thinks that there is great advantage in the United States versus Europe or other markets due to the nature of the sports and seeing how they, they consistently stop, right? So there's seconds between every NFL play, basketball plays have stoppage and so on and so forth. How does micro betting specifically expand the market for you guys? Well, soccer is by far the largest bet sport in the world. Obviously a great betting sport. No one would dispute that. But what's interesting about soccer is it's pretty continuous. There aren't really stoppages in play. And there are throw-ins from the sidelines and things, but the clock keeps running, and it's mostly a continuous sport. Sports like football, baseball, golf, all really, really well-built for live betting because there's these natural stoppages in play where, taking baseball, for example, you can bet on every pitch. Literally, ball strike, will the next pitch result in a home run, ground ball, all those sorts of things, that's literally every single pitch. You can do a bunch of different things. And so I think what Jason, Jason Park, our CFO, has said is that the U.S. sports are, the sports I should say that are popular in the U.S. are arguably structured better for live betting than a sport like soccer, as great as soccer is. A good example of this overseas is tennis. Tennis is one of the most popular live betting sports because you can bet on every point. There's a natural stoppage between each one and people bet on each point. So I think that while soccer is by far more popular and that's why it's dwarfed everything in size, take NFL, which is by far the most popular sport here. There's a stoppage between every play. You could bet on every play. I think that that's a quality that will lend itself to all sorts of options for people to be able to bet play to play. And if you could figure out some of these issues, like what I described, where there's flags thrown and stuff like that, and you can keep these markets up for as close to the entire time between the last play and the start of the next one, that's a lot of time for people to get different bets in. Gotcha. So I've heard you say in the past, I think at least publicly, that you ha- you believe this can be a, a trillion dollar company, right? So we're at 13 billion today and whether it gets, you know, whatever length of time it takes to get there, I think a lot of people have a question based on the diversification of your revenue streams, right? So based on 2020 numbers, I believe about 80 to 85% of your revenue came from online gaming. And then there was another 12 to 15% that came from licensing your technology and then another small category there. But how do you see the future of the diversification of your revenue streams? Well, first, uh, my legal will kill me if I don't clarify. I've always said our goal is to be a $1 trillion company. I don't want to mislead anybody to promise anything, but that is our goal. And the reason first, I'll tell you why it's our goal. And then I'll tell you a little bit more about what I think potentially could get us there. The reason why it's our goal is from day one, 
we've always thought of ourselves as this is something that has the potential to be a great consumer brand, to have all kinds of engagement. That's one thing we looked at. Like outside of Facebook, we had the highest time and app of any other major app out there. So when you have that quality and you have an engaged and passionate, loyal user that loves the brand, those are people that will be open to trying other things. It gives you a very elastic brand. And I think because we're a technology-driven company and we're really good at building things, really good at shipping product, really good at iterating based on data and optimizing based on data, there's a lot of things we think we can get into. We always make analogies to great companies. I think if you're going to try to do great things, then you have to learn from those that came before you. So we look at companies like Amazon, for example, Tesla, those types of companies and say, what are the common characteristics between them? What did they do? So take Amazon as an example. Amazon started selling books online. That was their original business. And now look at them. They've launched so many different products. They were ahead of the curve in investing in new technologies. For example, when people were thinking, hey, how do I make my FedEx bills to deliver e-commerce go down? Bezos was saying, how do I build my own delivery? How do I build drones? that can deliver packages. People thought he was crazy when he was saying those things, and at least some people did, but they were just always ahead of the curve. They were investing in AI before anyone else, and they're not afraid to take anybody on. They'll go into streaming, they'll go into music, they'll go into all sorts of categories where it's already pretty competitive. There's a lot of big companies throwing a lot of dollars at it, and they figure out how to do it better, and they figure out how to use the existing kind of synergistic aspect of Amazon Prime and their common technology and things like that in order to make it so that they do have an advantage and they are able to, to get an edge on the competition. So I think that's one I would point to. We also look at companies, you know, Amazon's one, but like Apple and Tesla that just have these really strong brands where customers are so loyal and they just, they're rooting for the company and they want to see that brand, that, that company succeed. And I think that's something we're trying to foster and build. But ultimately how we get there, the specifics, I can't tell you. Why? Because I don't know over the next 10, 20 years what the new things are going to be. We didn't know we were going to launch an NFT marketplace until this year. So if you had told me 10 years ago, predict that there's going to be this thing called NFTs, and that's going to be one of the things that you're really excited about being able to grow into a big business line years later, I wouldn't have even known what it was. No one would have known what it was. So I think what we're trying to do instead is to say there's an overall strategy. We're going to create sustainable growth by doing three things. One is we're going to keep gaining market share in the lines of business and in the, the geographies that we play in. Two, we're going to expand into new geographies. For now, that means new states with sports betting and iGaming, eventually international. And we're going to expand into new product lines, things like NFTs, things like our media business. That's really the three levers for growth. And I think if you keep doing those three things, if you keep expanding into new product lines, you keep expanding into new geographies, and you keep grabbing more and more share in the spaces that you're playing in, that's going to create a long-term path for sustained growth. What the specifics will be, I can tell you what we're doing next year. My can't tell you what we're going to be doing for the next 10 years. So part of what we're also trying to do is to create a culture and an approach to business where everybody values being on the cutting edge, being an innovator, saying, you know what? We're going to be ahead of the curve on things like blockchain. We're going to launch the NFT business before it's obvious to everyone else that this can be a big thing. I think blockchain is a great example of that. I made this analogy on Twitter. I think there were companies in the early 90s saying, 
eh, I don't know about this internet thing. I'm going to stick with my retail business. I'm not sure how big it's going to be. We don't want to be that company. A good example of that for us is when we first launched DraftKings, we were like, I think the 20th or 25th daily fantasy sports website to launch. So by no means we were first and we out-executed everybody. That's another thing I think we've proven is that we can execute really, really well. We can out-execute really strong competition, including competition that was better funded and farther along and way ahead of us at the time. Despite though being the 20th or 25th or 30th, whatever it was, Daily Fantasy website to launch, we were the first ones to launch mobile app. First ones on iOS, first ones on Android. Why? Because we looked at the data very early on. We said in our first year, 2012, we had about a little less than 10% of our traffic coming through mobile web. In 2013, that was up to just under 20%. Now, a lot of companies that say, who cares? That's still 80 plus percent of your traffic not coming there. Work on the website. But we said, we got to get out ahead of this thing. We had this vision that mobile was going to be big. We knew that there was a first mover advantage and we hadn't had that on the web. So we were the first ones to launch a mobile app. And then fast forward now, over 90% of our traffic comes through mobile. So I think being really good at recognizing those early trends, seeing things before others do, being willing to invest in them when others are waiting for them to prove out a little bit, that's a big part of what we're trying to build into the culture. And I think that's why whatever the world brings us, because you kind of can't define where the world's going. You have to look where the world's going and skate to where the puck's going, right? So I think being a, a company that's culture and approach to business is built around that is why I believe whatever happens, whatever new opportunities emerge, we're going to be all over it. Gotcha. So I'd love to touch on the share price quickly. I know that there's obviously a dilemma between focusing on the long-term needs of the business and then people getting riled up about the short-term share price and, and kind of the volatility in the day-to-day -day movements. There have been some outspoken critics soon, which I'm sure you are more than well aware of at this point. Hindenburg Research this summer put out a piece and, and took a short position, announced that. And then Jim Chanos announced one earlier this week or last week. What are your general thoughts on just kind of optimizing for the long-term value of the business versus the short-term share price? Well, first I sort of get it, but I find it very strange that people can take a short position and then go on and make up stuff that isn't rooted in reality, like making up numbers and other things. And that that just happens. It seemed weird to me, but that's the world we live in. I also think short selling, like people don't like short sellers. It's like for those who play uh, craps, it's like the guy at the casino betting the don't pass line. You're like, really? Like everybody else at the table is on the same team and you're going to be the one person that wants to root for you know something to happen where everyone else loses, you win. Why do that? So I don't like short selling. I've been pretty vocal about that. But coming back to your question, the market has whims. A year ago, growth, growth, growth. Who cares how much cash you're burning? Now more concern over how much cash you're burning. Our strategy didn't change. Our playbook didn't change. The way that we make decisions with analytics and metrics didn't change. So I think if you have conviction that what you're doing is going to lead to a very strong EBITDA number and a high growth rate for many years to come, you keep doing it. And the market will go back and forth and whipsaw. And those are things you can't control. But if you're doing the right things, ultimately, every stock's value will reflect what their results are. In the short term, that may not be the case. I mean, in Amazon, for example, was over $100 in 1999 and then dropped to five, like a little over five bucks. I mean, literally lost 95% of its market value. Now it's a $3,000 plus stock. So things happen. There's macro trends that affect, like right now, all of growth is trading off. Our sector is trading off. I can't control that. What I can do is make sure that the things we're doing allow us to build a better mousetrap, allow us to create the most profitable, highest growing company that we can possibly create. 
those are the things we control. And ultimately, the share price will reflect that over time. When we first announced that we were going public, coming up almost on two years ago, it was December 23rd, 2019, $10. The SPAC that we merged into, it's about 31 now. If you told me then that I would be 3x two years later, I would have loved that. I would have been thrilled with that. That would have been you know, a dream come true. And so I try to remind myself and I try to remind our team Yes, everybody's expectations get reset by what happened recently. Everybody's got a short memory. That's just the nature of humans. But if you really force yourself to step back and you look at long-term trends, that's what matters. And those that really believe in the vision and are with us for lengthy periods of time, those are the investors we want. Someone who's trading in and out of our stock, trying to base it on, hey, NFL is coming. I'm going to buy some. And when NFL is a month or two in, I'm going to sell it because I just wrote it up for a 5% gain. Like, that's not interesting to us. We want people that believe in the long-term vision, that think that what we're doing is going to ultimately create tremendous shareholder value, believe in our management team. Those are the right shareholders. Those are the people they're going to hold. And every stock is ultimately a function of supply and demand, just like everything in the market. Yep. So the more people that are going to buy and hold and aren't looking to trade in and out, the less supply that'll be on the market. And as results keep coming in and market catches on and says, huh, there really is something here. The demand goes up, the supply stays flat. That's how the stock goes up. Gotcha. So we only have about five minutes left here. I'm going to fire a few different questions <clears throat> at you and you let me know your thoughts on them. So I know you're into crypto. I believe you're into crypto. I know you wore a CryptoPunk t-shirt to ring the bell at NASDAQ, which was pretty funny. But specifically when it comes to DraftKings, have you guys looked at the possibility of allowing people to pay in Bitcoin or other cryptos? Yes, that is something we've looked at. Um, for the first time, there's some states that are starting to allow that. That's a new thing. So we are exploring that. And that's something that I think we'll, we'll be able to talk about a little bit more as plans come into place. But it is something that we're exploring. All right. I thought you were going to break some news on here, but may maybe next time <laughs> we will uh, we'll do that. Okay. The next one is Michael Jordan. He's a special advisor. What was that conversation like getting him on board? Well, it's Michael Jordan, so it's pretty cool Every, anytime you get to talk to a legend like that. And Michael also, is he's an NBA team owner, so it's very important to him to be close to this stuff. Personally, you know, he's interested in the category, I think. And he's also one of the most successful transitions from an athlete to a businessman in history. And, and he was doing this, by the way, when he was an athlete. I mean, he was a brand genius while he was playing. He turned himself into an iconic brand. He turned Nike into an iconic brand. He turned the Jordan brand, shoes, athletic wear, everything else into an iconic brand. So that's a gift that very few people in the world have. And when I first talked to him, he said, what do you want from me? What do you, how can I help? And I said, I want you to teach me how to build a brand like you did. That's incredible. The loyalty that people have. And by the way, most athletes, even the best athletes in the world, not everyone loves them. Everyone loves Michael. Even if he was kicking your team's ass, even if you were on the receiving end of it, you can't help but love Michael. So the fact that he's been able to achieve that, I think is remarkable. And he's told me a lot of really great things and given me a lot of really great advice. I've also asked him behind the scenes to help make some connections, open some doors. He's been great about that. He's incredibly available and responsive. And the guy is just a genius. It's incredible to work with people like that. Yeah, I think I've said this all the time, but I don't think there's been an athlete in history that has monetized their IP better than Michael Jordan, right? Just from a partnership perspective with Nike and everything that he's done. So incredible. All right, a couple more. So you guys have about $2 billion of cash on your balance sheet currently, I believe. There's been a bunch of other companies, mostly private, albeit, but some public companies that have started to diversify their balance sheet and look at other options instead of cash, right? We have in CPI coming in at 6.2 year over year. We could argue all day whether we believe that's the correct number 
number or not, but we won't. Have there been any internal discussions amongst your team about doing anything else with that cash, whether it's earning yield on stable coins or putting it in Bitcoin or another asset or, or just anything along those lines? We always are looking at ways that this is a sort of a new issue for us. We didn't have this kind of balance sheet until the last year or so. So we have started to talk about, is there a way that very safely we can increase the yield that we get on the cash that's sitting on our balance sheet? I think we have to be very careful because investors didn't give us that cash to go start investing in a bunch of random cryptocurrencies or anything like that. They gave it to us to build the business. So whatever we do, we need to be very careful that it's something that that isn't going to create any material risk to that capital. That's That's a conversation we'll have over the course of the next few months. And right now, I think we're just keeping it in treasuries and things because that's the safe place to put it. But we have talked about if there's ways to very safely gain higher yields and I think if we come to a strategy where we could do so, then we would. But we also keep reminding ourselves that people, we're we're not capital allocators in the equity markets or in things like that. People gave us the cash to build the business. And I think that's got to be primarily what we're doing with it. Gotcha. All right. Two more real quick for you. Someone told me that Dave Portnoy wrote an article in like 2015 or 2016 saying that he was offered equity in DraftKings. Is that a true story? Well, early on, Barstool was a great source of customers in the very early daily fantasy days. And at the time, we asked Dave if he was interested in being an advisor, and he turned it down. But we've kept a good relationship up with him. Obviously, we have a great relationship with Penn. They're a partner of ours. And I think that what they're doing with Barstool, whether you like Dave or not, it's at least they're trying to do something different. And I think you got to respect that. Yeah, it's certainly a uh, unique way to acquire customers. And I think people have adopted that for sure. All right, last one. What is the largest bet ever placed on DraftKings? a good question. It's definitely several million dollars. I don't have the exact number for you. I think it was the Mattress Mac bet, I want to say, that he placed on Buccaneers to win the... Uh, excuse me, was it on the Bucks? I think it was either against the Bucks. Yeah, I think it was against the Bucks to hedge something. I'm not sure, actually. I'll have to get back to you on that. I can't remember if it was on a couple the Bucks million dollars. Bucks, but yeah, it was in the millions, several million dollars. Crazy, crazy. All right, Jason, I'll let you go. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks again for doing this, man. Happy to do it anytime. I hope you have me back. Thank you.